0: Well, good morning, friends. It is uh, good to be with you guys. What a great morning. Kind of a little battle of the bands going on up here. You know, it was like the little kids table versus the adult table sing-off. I don't know. I'm going with the little guys. They had a little bit more energy than y'all did. I don't know, man. Maybe that's because they pumped them full of sugar during the 9 o'clock hour. Choir, you just had a cup of coffee. It just didn't cut it. But what a great morning. Thankful for everybody that's here this morning, especially if it's your first time with us. Maybe your first time in a long time. I'm Thomas Senior Pastor here at West Bowles. A great church that's trying to do a couple different things. We're a a church committed to helping people belong to a Christ-centered community of people. Hopefully believe that Jesus is their Lord and hopefully ultimately become a Christ follower. So if you're looking for or need any of those things, you think you've come to the right place. West Bowles is the church for you. I want to brag about this church just for a few minutes. I mean, in addition to Awana, which is an amazing ministry, it's just been doing great things this year. And by the way, the other night, the kids did a service project. They wanted to put together a few boxes for a children's hospital. Uh, They get money throughout the year for memorizing their verses and uh, little play dollars. And at the end, they get to buy things at a store. And Shar challenged the kids to spend some of their own money on these boxes for these kids in the hospital. They filled over 100 boxes for this children's hospital. Uh, incredible, incredible. They actually ran out. The little kids couldn't even do it, so we've got to do it again another night. But another, a few other great things are happening. Uh, come find me if you'd love to hear about Mops, our, our Moms of Preschool ministry, our women's brunch that sold out, pattern after Jesus, making blankets uh, by the dozens each and every week. Just amazing things. You're a big part of a church. Proud of you. Grateful for all you're doing. Another way that we're living out our mission is through a resource in a a series called The Story. Uh, We're looking at the biblical narrative from cover to cover. We're getting different parts of the NIV, and they've put them in chronological order for us so we can see how all the stories connect together, how they all connect to Jesus, and how they all actually connect to our own lives, hopefully make sense of and give some meaning and purpose to our own lives. If you haven't already, be sure to stop by the Welcome Center. Guests, we have a free mug full of information about our church out there for you. And everybody else, if you haven't grabbed a copy of your story yet, Go to the Welcome Center. Pick that up. We'd love for you to be reading right along with us. Let me pray about chapter 18 of our story uh, before we dive into it. God, you are the God of the heavens and the earth, and you have made the animals and grocery stores and everything in between, and you are an amazing God, and we do believe that you love us. We believe with all of our heart. We see it in what you've given to us, what you've made for us, and ultimately who you sent to us in your son, Jesus. Help us now, God, to express and grow in our love for you. Help us to have fun like you have fun in loving, your, uh, in loving you and in loving the people around us. Send your spirit now to empower us to do just that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Life is full of difficult and perplexing questions, is it not? If you've ever had a child ask you where babies come from uh, or maybe a child ask you where God comes from, then you know exactly how difficult some questions can be. There are certain questions, though, that have stumped people since the beginning of time. Questions like these, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? Or as Will Farrell tweeted a few months ago, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, have we not just found the perfect spot for a Justin Bieber concert? <laughs> There's other questions. Why are they called apartments if they're all stuck together? Why is the person who invests all your money called a broker Why is the time of day with the slowest traffic called rush hour? What's another word for thesaurus? And why do we say we slept like a baby when babies wake up every two hours? There are these questions, perplexing questions that are out there. And I wish I had some deep insight for you as it pertains to these questions this morning, but I don't. What I want to try to do is give you some insight into another question that for some of us is just as perplexing. This morning I want us to talk about a question that most Christians have asked or one that as a Christian you definitely should be asking. And the question is simply this, what does it mean to be a believer in an unbelieving world? Put another way, what does it look like to live for Christ in a culture that's hostile to Christ? Or even another way, how do you live a life that mirrors the priorities of heaven when the people around you don't think there is or ever will be a heaven? It's my sincerest hope that you've wrestled with these questions at some level because the way you answer this question is really what lies at the heart of your faith as a believer. And the way you answer these questions is really what will dictate and determine what you say, how you act, what you believe, and what you think. So I'm so excited about the next couple chapters of our story, chapters 18 through 21, because they're actually going to give us some incredible answers to this very question. The last few weeks, we've covered some pretty heavy stuff. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, as we went through chapters 16 and 17 of the story. You know that we kind of dove headfirst into the topics of pain and suffering. Some of which comes as a result of a good father's expression of tough love. And some of which comes as a result of a sovereign God's desire for the world to experience his love. And one we can kind of grasp and make sense of, a father disciplining for the moment. But the other, a God using pain and suffering for good purposes, we can't make sense of that. It's a hard one to grasp. Neither is easy to talk about, and I did say a lot the last couple weeks, but there's still a lot that you have to say, and maybe a lot you'll never be able to say. There's a lot you'll never be able to know with absolute certainty as it pertains to what happened in our life, what happened in this world, and why, but I hope that you understand that through these chapters, and maybe through your own life, you can say a few things, that God is with you, God is for you, and God's working it out with you and for you as well. The next few chapters really prove that to us, and I'm excited about that. The next few chapters of the story are about God's people and their experiences in Babylon. They've been taken captive. They've been ripped away from their homeland, and they're in a strange place with strange people. But what's amazing about this is that their experiences in this place actually mirror and reflect our experiences in this place. It's eerily similar. Let me show you what I mean. The year is 605 B.C., and this guy right here is King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of the Babylonian Empire, which is the new bully on the block, the new superpower of the world. And this guy's going through and defeating one nation after another. Insert like chest bumps and manly mannerisms, like grunts and all that stuff. Well, wouldn't you know it, one of the nations that he overtakes is a little nation called Judah. It's a little nation of people that God selected out of the world so that God could partner with them to ultimately bless, save, and serve the world. Well, they've been taken over by King Nebi like his friends like to call him. But in addition to, uh, or as he, as he dominates you, as he comes in and takes over your land, what he does, kind of in an arrogant expression of dominance, is he, he takes all of your religious paraphernalia, all the things that you deem as valuable and important, and he takes all of those things, and he puts them kind of like in a sacrilegious trophy case in his own temple to his own God. He's like, see, my God's better than yours, because I've got your stuff. But in addition to taking all of the, the stuff that you have, all of your best stuff, all of your religious stuff, all those significant items, King Nebuchadnezzar also takes significant people. He's got a very interesting philosophy as it comes to overcoming the world and taking over the world. Instead of just exterminating his enemies, he actually enlists them in his service. Instead of killing his captives, King Nebuchadnezzar actually converts them. See, before destroying Jerusalem and burning it to the ground, King Nebuchadnezzar went through and he gathered 10,000 people. He gathered the 10,000 best of the best, young and bright individuals who he didn't want to kill or enslave. He wanted to use for his own good purposes. His standards were high. Young men who were of noble birth, handsome, athletic, smart, quick to understand. This is a picture of someone like that. Or the other one that Ryan found on my Facebook. That was embarrassing. I mean, not many of you have seen me with my shirt off and for good reason. But think about this strategy for a second. Instead of taking out your enemy, you bring them in. You immerse them in your own culture. You show them what you have to offer. You subtly and not so subtly change the way they think. You change their identity and ultimately you change their allegiance. We can call it project conversion. You start when they're young and impressionable. You send them to Babylon State University. You deconstruct all they've ever known and believed. You begin to change their names, then their daily routines. You change how they think and ultimately who they worship. And speaking of worship, King Nebuchadnezzar was a very religious man. He loved to worship. So when he took you under his wing, when he took you as a captive, he didn't require you to stop worshiping your God. He just required that you start worshiping his gods as well. There was a lot of worship to go around. No one group could claim that they had a superior God or the only one true God. This was tolerance, open-mindedness, and relative truth that it's best and it's worse. Now, let's just pause here for a second. Can you think of another society that mirrors what I just described? I know this could be hard, but, but give it a shot. Can you think of another society that will let you worship a God as long as you don't claim that he's the only God or the biggest God or the greatest God? Can you think of another society where tolerance is more valued than truth can you think of another society where people are persecuted for believing that there is one way a right way a god-ordained way to live this life can you think of another society where they take our young people and they spend years i don't know let's say four instilling in them completely different set of values and priorities and beliefs can you think of another society where the outside culture is drawing you subtly and not so subtly away from the biblical narrative to their own narrative, away from what God says is true to what the rich and powerful say is true? Can you think of another society that might look like and feel like that, can you? Anyone? Bueller? <laughs> Bueller? Right? Anybody? It's not crazy, though. It's, it's, that world is so incredibly similar to our own. In fact, for the rest of our story, for the rest of the Old Testament, and even going into the New Testament, they're going to refer to Babylon as just kind of the world we live in. It's going to be an analogy and a metaphor for an unbelieving world that believers are now forced to live in. So what do you do in Babylon? What do you do in a culture like this? What's your responsibility as a God follower at a time like this? How do you live a life that mirrors and reflects and points to God in a place like this? Well, people have wrestled with this for years. They've more or less come up with three different answers. Your first option is to separate yourself from the culture. All right In this option, you stay as far away from those evil Babylonians as possible. You build a monastery in the mountains or a commune outside the city, or heck, you just build your fence as large as the HOA will allow. But you try to stay as far away from those guys as possible. Let's bring it a little closer to home. Separationists today might only attend Christian events only participate in Christian sports leagues, only listen to K-Love, or only watch movies produced by Kurt Cameron, right? They more or less operate under a contamination spirit that if I get too close to something that's sinful, I myself will become sinful. So I stay away, far, far, far away. Well, your second option is to do the exact opposite. You just dive headfirst into the culture around you. I mean, when in Rome... So you listen to, you spend your money on, you take vacations to the exact same places that everybody else does. You more or less assimilate to the culture around you. I mean, Paul does say we have to become like the people around us if we're going to minister effectively to them, so let's just dive in. So our homes, our hearts, our habits, our hobbies, they all look just like everybody else's. But we go to church every Sunday, three out of four, and we do have a Christian playlist on our iPhone. So give us some credit for that, Pastor. But more or less, it just kind of blends in and looks like everybody else. Or maybe you prefer what happens or lies behind door number three. Option number three is you feel like it's your responsibility to war against the culture around you. You feel like the best thing you can do for God is to fight against everybody that's not for God. So you curse, you criticize, you condemn anything that's not of the kingdom. And you're vocal, sometimes even militant in your approach. You protest, you make posters, you post things on Facebook about the horrible condition of our world, and you fight against it. As a believer in a non-believing culture, most think you separate, assimilate, or subjugate that particular culture. I had no idea what subjugate meant until I looked it up. Those taking the ACT in a few weeks, you're welcome. But I don't think God's very happy with any of those three options. I don't think he wants us to settle in any one of those particular camps. I don't think he wants us to separate, assimilate, or subjugate. There's got to be a better option out there, and there is. And it's one that this video speaks to powerfully. Watch this.
1: What's my purpose? Why am I here? Why do I exist? The world around me constantly tries to insist that everything revolves around me. But here's the twist, living for myself alone means my true purpose has been missed. See, throughout time, God hasn't made two people the same. So look at your life. What's your ultimate aim? Is your only goal to bring a claim to your name, or are you dedicating each moment to proclaim His fame? And what if you could discover the purpose for which you've prayed? What if you really believed that you were wonderfully made? What if God's gift to you is the way your talents are displayed? And what if using those talents is how God's gift is repaid? What if you were created to do something no one's ever done before? What if you alone held the key to an unopened door? What if the what ifs no longer shook you to the core? And what if you stopped settling for less and started living for more? See, do you participate in a love that costs you dearly? Because any love worth anything is anything but free. So let's do all we can to live and love differently. Let's be the fully devoted followers God's called us to be. So how do we show the world the depth of our passion? The first step to breaking down walls is compassion. Our passion for compassion can never go out of fashion, nor can it remain stagnant It must be put into action. Because if Jesus didn't have this compassion, where would we be? Because while we were still sinners, he died for you and for me. And now we're made whole, we're brand new and set free. So let's live for his kingdom, his fame and his glory. So we're not called to see those living in the city and separate. But we're not called to become too much like the world and assimilate. We're called to be in the world but not of it and thus permeate. So we can stand boldly in the darkness and illuminate.
0: I love that video for so many reasons. One is there are other bald guys out there that talk really fast. Okay? Let the records show I'm not the only one. But more than that. God doesn't want his people to assimilate, to separate, or to subjugate. He wants them to permeate. What a great word, to permeate. And it's a word that Jesus himself used, right? He referred to this as being salt of the earth, light of the world. These are fascinating analogies because those two things, they don't destroy, demolish, or devastate the things that they come into contact with. They bless, they enhance, and they improve the things they come into contact with. Salt was used to heal, to preserve, and to add some flavor to a bland, sinful, dying world. And light, light was used to guide and protect and illuminate. Those things weren't used to hurt or to harm. They weren't used to burn or to burden. So permeating looks like that we are fundamentally different than everything else around us, but that we remain in constant contact with everything else around us so that we may bring life to everything else around us. You see that? You are fundamentally different. If you've ever mistaken salt for sugar or vice versa, you know salt's pretty distinct. You're supposed to be different. But you're also to remain in close contact with the world so you can be a blessing to the world. What good is salt if it loses its distinctiveness, Jesus asked? And what good is a light if you just hide it and put it under a bowl? We've entitled this last little mini-series here in our Old Testament study, Breaking Bad. I'm sure multiple images come to mind when you hear that phrase. But according to Jesus, the best way that you break bad, the best way to break Babylon is not to separate, not to assimilate, and not to subjugate, but to permeate. And when Jesus said this, it wasn't the first time his people heard this message. In Jeremiah 28, we read about a prophet named Hananiah. Hananiah is just a yes man. He'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. And in 28, Jeremiah 28, he's telling everybody that within a few years, God is going to take them out of the exile and bring back the good old days. This Babylonian captivity thing is only going to last two years at the most. Then God's going to come, clean house, and bring us back to the way that it was and that it should be. So he was telling people, stay away from Babylon. Don't worry about Babylon. Don't participate in the things in Babylon. Because Babylon is going to burn in two years. And good riddance to it when it does. Then the real prophet of God, Jeremiah, comes in. He says something completely different. Look at Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you off to into exile. Pray to the Lord for Babylon, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Okay, okay, wait Wait. just a second here. First, God, you told us that you did this to us. You sent us into Babylon. Say what? Secondly, now you're telling me to befriend, Mary and pray for those whom you use to do this to us? That's like a, say what, what? If that's even a thing. I don't know why I do it in a high pissed voice, but I do. But think about, think about how odd this is. Think about how countercultural this is. Think about how different this is, even for God's people. For a long time, he did say, I need you to separate. But times are different now. The plan is different now. The way you're going to live in Babylon is different. Now, things are gonna be different in exile. You're not to separate, you're not to assimilate, you're not to subjugate, you need to permeate. Side note, if you've spent much time in the church or reading the Bible, then you know Jeremiah 29, 11. The text goes on to say this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a the future. Then you'll call on me, come and pray to me. I'll listen to you. You'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. You know this verse, Jeremiah 29? It's like one of our go-to verses. It's like Romans, yes, and then Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven, 11. John, this is one of our go-to. I know the plans I have for you. Good plans. Plans of prosperity. Plans of peace. We know this first, but how many of us knew this was the context in which it was given? It was given in a captivity context. God says, I will bless you, I will strengthen you, after you bless and strengthen the pagan city that you live in. Changes the way you see that little crocheted wall hanging in the bathroom, doesn't it? Oh, Jeremiah 29 11. It's a command to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Wow seek the peace and prosperity of the city. What a fascinating command given all that happened this week and last in Baltimore. Seek the peace of places like Baltimore. Seek the prosperity of places like Baltimore. And not just peace, lack of conflict peace, lack of fighting peace. The word there is shalom. It's a biblical word meaning holistic well-being. Seek the well-being of the city that you live in even if it is pagan, even if it is called Babylon, seek its peace, seek its well-being, seek its prosperity. What? And now, with all of that as a context, we get to chapter 18. Because it's in the middle of this, in the middle of the captivity, and in the middle of Jeremiah's command from the Lord to bless and seek the prosperity of the city that were introduced to a man named Daniel, along with his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These four boys, they're probably no older than 18, which is what I love so much about this story because it connects so much to our young people. They were part of, guess what, those 10,000 I told you about before. They were given full tuition to Babylon State University. These four boys, some of the best of the best, some of the brightest, most most athletic, and King Nebuchadnezzar saw it. So he says, I want you to become like me. I want to use you for my own purposes. So here, here's a Babylonian master's degree on the house. And while they're studying Babylon history and language and culture and art, they give us an amazing blueprint, I think, for how to live in our own exile, for what it looks like to live in our own little Babylon of sorts. I think it boils down to two things. One is a refusal to go along with it all, and the second is a readiness to give it all. Let's walk through those things quickly together. As we've seen with other characters in our story so far, guys like Joseph and David, God blesses the work of their hands so much so that no matter where they're working, they're exalted and given promotions. The Same thing happens with Daniel. Within a few short years, he's raised up to one of the top positions in all of Babylon, and in that position, he asks for his three friends to be promoted as well. So these four dudes are like running the place after just a few short years. But here's the crazy thing about these guys, before and after their promotions, They refused to go along with everything that was happening around them. There came certain moments, certain times, certain situations where they had to draw a line in the the sand and say, listen, King Nebuchadnezzar, we'll go along with a lot of things here in Babylon, but we won't go along with that. They had to draw the line and they had to stand firm on this side of it. See, while living in Babylon, it was going to be impossible to not do some of the things the Babylonians were doing. Unless you decide to live way out in Bailey with a a generator and some solar panels off the grid, you're going to be connected to Babylon somehow. My apologies if that describes your life. No judgment, just saying that's kind of how it is. But you're going to be connected to Babylon at some level. And the same was true with the boys. A little bit of assimilation is inevitable. God knows that. The boys allowed for their names to be changed. Names that are very pagan. And actually the names that we refer to them by. Who do we call these three boys? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Guess what you're saying when you say those names? You're saying, hail to King Nebuchadnezzar's pagan gods. That's what those names mean. And yet that just didn't seem to be that big of a deal for the boys. Go ahead, change our names. That's that's fine. They took on pagan jobs later in the story. And I hope we can study Daniel the entire book at some point. It's just an incredible story. We learn that Daniel takes the job of head sorcerer head sorcerer that's a pagan job if I ever heard of one he seems to be okay with it they probably drove pagan cars cheered for the pagan Babylonian football team I mean they did what Babylonians do because they lived in Babylon so certain things it was okay for them to go along with to a point but there came a point where these four boys refused to drink the king's kool-aid literally for one reason or another, after being chosen, the boys refused to eat and drink this huge spread that was prepared for them on the king's table. This is the page, top of page 250 in our storybook. It says, Daniel refused to defile himself. Some think this was due to God's food laws and prohibitions. Others think this food was sacrificed to pagan Babylonian idols. Something that eating from the king's table meant that you were swearing political allegiance to the king. We don't have time to go into all of it, but the point is the same. The boys were deeply convicted. If they gave in on this one thing, it would influence and deeply affect their ability to influence other people when it came to everything else. When it came to this one thing, they would severely hurt their ability to permeate the culture if they gave in on it. And so they only ate vegetables and they only drank water for several weeks And yet at the end of that time, they looked better and were stronger than everybody else. And vegetarians and mothers everywhere said, we told you so. It was a bold, risky, sacrificial stand. We'll go along with a lot of stuff here in Babylon, because we're living in it. We get that. But we won't do that. We simply won't do that. This isn't the last time that we're going to see these guys make this stand, draw this line, and refuse to cross over it. In fact, some of the most famous stories in all of the biblical narrative are here in Daniel, and they all revolve around these guys saying, we'll do a lot of this, but we won't do that. Reminds me of that meatloaf song back in the day. I'll do everything for love, but I won't do that. No, no. Come on, who's, who's heard meatloaf? Thank you. You guys acted like you'd never heard it before. Liars. See, this little food snub was nothing to what happened later in the story. On page 254, we read that one day, King Nebuchadnezzar decided to build a huge golden statue, 90 feet tall, in fact. Let me just give you a little reference point for that. This huge window out here that you can see across half the state, that's 80 feet tall. So a 90-foot-tall golden statue that he demanded everybody bow down to and worship, or else. And the or else was, oh yeah, I'll throw you into a fiery furnace and burn you to death. Pretty serious threat. Well, guess what? Everybody decides to bow down to this thing except for, wouldn't you know it, Daniel's three friends. This infuriates the king. He yells and he screams and he threatens. He does what kings do. He threatens to turn up the heat. And the three boys say this in Daniel three sixteen: King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing fur- furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. want we'll to talk about drawing a line in the sand for God and refusing to cross it. Throw me into the furnace. I believe God can save me from that pain and suffering. Even if he doesn't, even if he makes me go through it, I won't do that. I just won't do it. No matter the cost, no matter the consequence. Daniel's not a part of this showdown, but later in his life, he takes a similar stand. Later in our story, we learn that Daniel is now advising King Cyrus of Persia. He's one of the wisest advisors there is, and as a result, everybody else is kind of jealous of him. So all the other advisors come up with a plan, and they get the king to issue in a decree. Kings say this, anybody who worships or prays to anybody else except for you for 30 days should be thrown into the lion's den. King's like, sounds good, so he does it. Well, guess what Daniel does with this no prayer rule? He goes and he prays about it. He goes and he prays about this. You see, it was his uh, custom to pray three times a day, prayers of thanksgiving and prayers asking God for help. He prays right in front of an open window where everybody can see him and everybody can hear him and everybody does see him and everybody can hear him and everybody turns on him. You see, we think that banning prayer from school was pretty bad. Imagine banning prayer, period. Daniel says, I'll do a lot of stuff in Babylon. I'll do a lot of stuff for you, king, but I won't do that. I won't cross that line. Well, King Cyrus liked Daniel, but a decree's a decree. A threat's only good if you follow through on it. So Darius has Daniel thrown into the lion's den. You know how that story turns out? This young boy is completely maimed by the ferocious beast, and so we never hear about him again. End of chapter 18. It's horrible. Or not. But do you see this theme running throughout all of these stories? It could be eating from the king's table. It could be bowing down to this golden statue. It could be a refusal to pray. To pray. But all of these things are, are, have the same essence at the heart of them. The same is true in all of these stories. God is asking people to take certain stands at certain times against certain cultural norms. Yes, God has asked you to live and work and exist in this culture. But he's also asking you to be a little bit different from this culture what was true for them is also true for us god knows he expects he's fine with the fact that we do some babylonian things he's not mad that we drive cars own homes buy clothes have jobs see movies pay for pay-per-view fights right he's not mad about that he knows that we exist in babylon he placed us here but in the middle of all that in the midst of all that There's going to be times in each of our lives where God is going to convict us. He's going to challenge us to stand up for him by standing out against some cultural norms. I think God is going to place certain things on our hearts that are not only going to go against the flow of culture, but that might actually infuriate the culture, if not at least confuse them. Here's the question, though. Are you receptive enough right now to God's voice to hear that call, to hear where in your life you need to draw a line in the sand? And then secondly, are you courageous enough to stand firm on this side of the line? Are you receptive enough to hear God saying, I need you to permeate, and by doing that, I cannot have you do that? Are you hearing him say that to you? And if you are hearing him, are you courageous enough right now to do it? I don't want to get too specific here out of fear that people will kind of make this stuff law or get upset with me or think that I'm just setting up some arbitrary rules. But I got to give you some examples here. I got to help you connect the dots a little bit. One of the ways that we might have this Daniel-esque commitment or this Daniel-esque refusal is maybe when it pertains to sexual purity. You're going to get sick and tired of me talking about this, church. It's just a big deal, I think. And we talked about pornography and and guy and gal struggles in in pornography right now, both in the church and outside the church. We've got to figure out a way to to be different than that, to draw a line when it comes to pornography. But another place we need to draw the line is when it comes to remaining a virgin until you get married. See, if you want to draw a line in the sand, if you want to be different than anybody else in Babylon, then commit to not sleeping around with someone until they've committed themselves to you in marriage. I'll date you. I'll, I'll kiss you. I'll whisper sweet nothing's in your ear but I'll not have sex with you, I will not give my entire body to you until you have made a commitment before everybody and before God to me. I just won't do it. I'll do a lot of things over here, I'll do a lot of things for you, but I won't do that. I remember talking with some buddies about this very, very thing my senior year of college. I told some friends that Beck and I had been dating for five years, we were gonna be getting married that summer, and that we had decided not to be physically intimate with each other until we got married. You would have thought an alien creature was climbing out of my face. <laughs> the look they gave me, the What? I don't know why, but the Lord just really convicted us. To permeate the culture, we gotta be a little bit different than the culture. To permeate the culture, we gotta refuse to go along with everything happening in the culture. And I think a big line right there was, we won't do that. We just won't do that. Maybe there are a line for you has to or pertains to drugs and alcohol. The other night I saw a commercial about the dangers of getting high and driving. That was a first for me. Never seen that before. They don't have those in California. What's wrong with you people? What are you doing out here? Well, we probably should talk a little bit more, right, about the prevalence of drugs in our city and our state. As a college minister for years, I know that getting high and getting totally plastered leading up to and on your 21st birthday, that's just norm. That's what everybody does, what you do when you live in Babylon. But maybe we as Christians take a stand and we say, it's not just a matter of not doing it and then not driving. It's a matter of not doing it. We draw a line in the sand right here because I can't love God with all my mind when not all my brain cells are firing on the same cylinder. And I can't love God with all my mind, and I can't make the most of every opportunity if I'm wasting an opportunity by giving my heart and my mind and my thoughts to something else. I just can't do it. So so I'll do a lot of things. I'll go there with you. I'll hang out with you. I'll talk about that stuff. But I'm going to draw a line. I won't do that. I have to refuse to do that because somehow in your refusal to do that, you're permeating the culture around you. Maybe a stance for you revolves around how you talk or what you talk about cursing and gossip just seem to be a huge part of everybody's vocabulary don't they like i don't know what to say so i'll just i'll just drop an f-bomb why not but maybe for you a uh, line is with sabbath rest technology timeout. maybe you need to unplug a little bit from everything else around you so you can actually give your family the time and attention they deserve maybe you need to draw a line and say i won't check emails after this hour Maybe a stance for you revolves around your health or your body image. Maybe you need to draw a line between uh, taking care of the body God gave you and obsessing over the body God gave you. I will care for it, I will exercise, I will want to look good, but I'm gonna draw a line and I won't do that. I will refuse to do that. I'm not sure what it is for you, but I'm just convinced out of this chapter that a way we permeate this culture is by refusing to do everything else that's in this culture. A refusal to do some of the things that we find happening in this culture. Now, here's the thing hear me out. Do not make a big scene about it. Do not announce it with the trumpet, and don't you dare condemn others for not taking that same stance. If you do, I'm going to slap you. In Jesus' name. (laughs) But you read this story, the boys didn't make a big deal about it. Nobody knew they were doing that food thing. Very few saw them not bow to the statue. And only a handful knew that Daniel was still praying. So don't make a big deal out of it. Don't blow your own horn or whatever that saying is. Don't, don't make a big deal out of it. Just do it because God has asked you to do it. Allow the Spirit to convict you. And like Daniel say, I'll go along with certain things in Babylon. You put me here, God, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. I have to be a part of the city to do that. But I won't do that. No matter the cost, no matter the consequence. That leads us to the second way that we uh, permeate this culture what we see in chapter 18 in addition to a refusal to go along with it all we also have to be ready to give it all daniel and his three friends were willing in multiple situations to give it all up if that's what it took they were willing to give their very lives for god and watching someone offer their life because of their devotion to god isn't there just something life-giving about that like awe-inspiring it's so encouraging to see somebody who is so sold out say i'm gonna give it all if that's what it takes, then that's what I'm going to give. And, and we are in a position right now to literally give up our lives for Christ. But I still think we can exemplify this principle. I still think we can live this principle out. And instead of giving up our physical lives, I think what we have to do is give up all the stuff that makes up our lives. I think what we do instead is share all the stuff that consumes our lives. See, the early disciples proved their allegiance because they said, yes, I'm willing to give my life for you, but they were also willing to say, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 6, Acts 6, uh, I'll give all my stuff for you. I'll give my life if that's what it take, takes, and I'll give everything that makes up my life if that's what it takes. So maybe we can follow them in that regard. Look at 1 Chronicles 29, 11 with me. It says, everything in heaven and on earth is truly yours, God. If that is true, That everything from my iPhone to my 401k to my talents to my car to my unfinished basement, if everything is his, then I should probably be a little bit more willing to share it with others. I should probably be a little bit more loose-handed with it instead of like mine. Right? No, it's not. It's not yours. Child? Toddler? It's his. And he actually said, when you share it with the least of these, it's like you're giving it back to me. Wow. He says, give it all. Give it all for me. Because somehow when you give it all, in a culture that says, give it all, no, 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 You don't give it all. You buy a storage shed so you can store it all. Again, I don't know why I went like redneck there. Rednecks don't have to buy storage sheds. They just put it in their driveway. But think about that. The fastest growing industry in America, storage units. They're popping up everywhere. Why? Because our two-car, sometimes three-car garage doesn't hold enough stuff, so we need another place to put even more of our stuff. And God says, how about you permeate the culture by sharing a lot of that stuff? Give a lot of that stuff away, and I think you'll actually bless Babylon and bring its prosperity about. A story came about years ago about an atheist reporter from Chicago. He ran a story about a poor family living in an inner-city apartment. No furniture, not much food in the kitchen, only a few outfits the two little girls had to share. Well, a few weeks later, he went to visit the family. And upon entering this this downtrodden apartment, this downtrodden family, he couldn't believe his eyes. The article had touched so many readers that a lot of them had responded by giving this family everything they needed and wanted and then some. The apartment was full of stuff. The reporter was astonished. But what happened next blew his mind. He noticed the family was preparing to give all of it away. What are you doing, he asked. Why would you give all this new stuff away? Well, the grandmother said, our neighbors are still in need. We cannot cannot have plenty while they have nothing. This is what Jesus has asked us to do. And for the first time in his life, the atheist reporter said he was speechless and he started to rethink his religious beliefs. You see, because you permeate a culture when you're willing to give it all away. Maybe you heard the story of the church in Charlotte that received this envelope in their offering plate a few weeks ago. It says, please don't be mad. I don't have much. I'm homeless. There was 18 cents in the envelope. Jesus isn't mad. He's really happy, actually, because he gave it all. It's like the, the widow, right, with the two coins, because she gave it all When you are ready to give it all, you're ready to permeate the culture. When you're ready to give it all, when you're ready to share your stuff with others, when you're ready to give your life away by taking time and using your talents for the sake of others, when you're ready to lay your life down for Jesus, you will permeate this culture and bring life to you, your family, and everybody else that's around you. You'll bless Babylon when you're ready to give it all up. So why do we park in a driveway yet drive in a parkway? Can a hearse carrying a corpse drive in the carpool lane? Um, why do dogs like you to blow in, or hate for you to blow in their face yet like to stick their head out the window? I don't know. <laughs> there are perplexing questions out there. And I, I don't have the answer to those. But based on chapter 18, I do know that the way you live as a godly believer in a culture that doesn't believe in God is to permeate. Do not separate, do not assimilate, do not subjugate, but permeate. And the way you do that is by refusing to go along with it all and being ready and willing to give it all. Amen, church? This morning, we're gonna end our time together by taking communion. I think this is a powerful way for us to do this. Uh, Ushers, why don't you guys come forward and pass that out. Band, I'm gonna ask you guys to come up as well. We're gonna take communion together. It's the first Sunday of the month, which is what we kind of plan on doing, communion every first Sunday. But today, it's perfect, because today, we remind ourselves, through communion, that Jesus already did these two things for us before he ever asked us to do them for him. Does that make sense? Think about his broken body on the cross. His blood shed for us on the cross. What was he doing? He was willing to take a stand. He was going to take a stand against evil and death and Satan himself. And even though you had crossed the line and I had crossed the line, we were living over here pretty, pretty happily on this side of the line, Jesus said, I'm going to stay on this side of the line. I'm going to take a stand for what is good, what is right. And not only did he take a stand, but then he was ready to give it all. That's what this meal is all about. Jesus giving his body for us. If it takes it all, God, then I'll give it all to you, God. That's what Jesus said on the cross. So take both of those elements, if you would hold on to them for a second. We're gonna take them together after this song is over. This song, I think, powerfully attests to this spirit, this desire that all of us should have to take a stand against it all and be willing to give it all. I think Daniel and the three boys Another thing real fast as we're taking this. Daniel and the three boys were able to do these things, these difficult things, because they had one another. You don't read just about Daniel. You don't read just about Hananiah or all these other guys. You read about these four guys together together these four guys lived in community. They were accountability partners. They strengthened each other. And when Daniel maybe wanted to give in, these other three guys said no. When the other three wanted to give up, Daniel said no. And so in communion, we not only celebrate the Lord who died for us, but we now also celebrate the church he gave to us. The community of people that when we're trying to make a stand and it's hard to take a stand, I'm not alone in taking that stand because you're here with me helping me to take that stand. When I want to give it all, but the culture around me saying, no, 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 take more for yourself, you can help me to give it away. Does that make sense? So in communion, we celebrate the broken body of Jesus, perfectly exemplifying these two truths, but we also know that we're not alone as we seek to live out these two truths ourselves. So listen to this song. We'll pray for and take communion when it's over.